0: Good morning. morning. Welcome to worship here at Northminster Church on this beautiful Sunday morning. Whether you're joining us in person or online, we are glad that you are here with us this morning. A few quick notes for you before we begin our service. The first is to say thank you and a special welcome to anyone who's visiting with us. We are particularly glad that you are here uh, today. I apologize. There's a new microphone. I'm still learning how to work it. Uh, particular welcome to our visitors we are glad that you are here we hope that you will join us in all aspects of our worship service including communion that everyone here is welcome to participate in as a reminder we have returned to a pre-covid way of doing communion and just so we're clear on the flow of traffic and dh can correct me if i'm wrong the lectern side will come out the middle aisle and come up to receive communion and go back to your seats The pulpit side will come out the side aisle, come up to get communion, go back to your seats. We got a little confused last week. Did I get that right, D.H.? Excellent. So, just come out to this side and go back to your seat and everything will be fine. I also want to remind you as you look at our beautiful floral arrangement this morning that just, it it, it is fall in flower form. You are welcome and encouraged to take some of those flowers home with you after the service to brighten your day or someone else's, so do please make sure to do that. I also want to point out a couple of things that you, as you look at our order of worship this morning. The first is that our call to worship is going to be in a call and response style that I will explain when we get there. You're also going to see that we have split up the middle hymn, Hymn 70, and there is no asterisk. That means you as the congregation do not need to stand for that. The choir will. Don't follow the choir this one time. Stay seated. We will do the children's message in between, and then after the children's message, we will do stanzas 2 and 3 of Hymn 70. Claire's might on that? Excellent. And then speaking of our children's message, this is something we are adding back in for the first time today. Um, You parents may decide how you define a child, so if you would like for them to come up and join me, we will gather on the stairs when I give you those instructions. Now, kids, I need you not to run. Don't push. We're going to try to do this every single week. But just come up. We'll sit together. We're going to talk about some things. And then, depending on what your parents have told you, you're either going to go back to your seat or you're going to go back in the back um, with Mrs. Curry and the rest of our child care workers. So when we get there, adults, if it's chaos, it'll be chaos, and we're going to get right through it. We are doing this so that our children know that there is something in the worship service for them in particular. And now I'm going to ask, as I do every week, that we take a deep breath together. That was a lot of instructions. And we take this deep breath to calm our minds and quiet our hearts and center ourselves in this time that we have together. So take that deep breath. Breathe, if you can, all the way down to the tips of your toes. As you breathe out, breathe out your to-do list, breathe out the homework that maybe isn't done, breathe out those things that we all carry with us into worship that are distracting. Breathe in one more time, know that you are loved by God, and then let us join in this call to worship together. Here's how this is going to work. This is call and response. I will offer a statement. Your first response is, be ready. You'll see that in your order of worship. And then when I tell you to, we're going to switch over to, we are ready. So, I will tell you when to change, but we're going to begin. Your response will be, be ready. Jesus said to his disciples, Be ready. Whatever you are doing, Be ready. You could be eating or drinking, just Be ready. Be ready to do what God wants. Be ready. Like Noah was. God told Noah to be ready. You never know what might happen, so be ready. Be ready to what God wants, just be ready. Now we move into our more active second response. We are ready. Be ready to help others. Are you ready? We are ready. Be ready to forgive. Are you ready? We are ready. Be ready to be kind and friendly. Are you ready? We are ready. Be ready to think about others. Are you ready? We are ready. Be ready to say that you are sorry to those you have hurt. Are you ready? We are ready. Be ready to accept people, all people. Are you ready? We are ready. Be ready to do what God wants for you in your unique life. Are you ready?
1: We are ready.
2: To learn from and experience a variety of biblical translations, we will be hearing this morning's gospel reading from the First Nations version of the New Testament. This is an indigenous translation created by indigenous people that follows the tradition of native storytellers' oral cultures. Much of the language will be familiar but there are idiomatic and cultural influences that will catch your attention. <laughs> you listen for those and enjoy this beautiful translation. Matthew 8, 23 to 27. They came to the lake and creator sets free. And his close followers climbed into a canoe and began to paddle across the lake. Suddenly, the violent storm overtook them and threatened to sink the large canoe, but creator sets free had fallen into a deep sleep. In desperation, they woke him up. Wisdom keeper, they cried out. We are fighting for our lives, save us. Why are you full of fear? He asked them. Is your faith so small? He stood up and spoke sharply to the wind and the raging water. At his words, a great peace fell upon the surface of the waters. Creator sets freeze. Followers were greatly amazed. They shook their heads and said to one another, What kind of man is this? Even the wind and waves do what he says. The Gospel of our Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Your are
0: part of my job is to help you learn things. That's part. That's a big part of my job, and that's one of my favorite parts of my job. So, this is a pretty simple test. I think you're going to ace it, but it is a little bit of a test. Are you ready? I don't want you to get up, but I do want you, and this is the one time it's okay to point, right? Because our parents tell us pointing is rude, but this time it's okay. I would like for you to point at the organ. Where's the organ? Where's the organ? Everybody point. It's that big instrument right there with all the pipes. Good. Now, can you point at the choir? Where's the choir? Yeah, all those lovely people back there. Now, where's the congregation? Can you point to the congregation? No, that's not the congregation. (laughs) All of these people. This is the congregation. You are part of the congregation. Okay, where's the pulpit? where I usually stand, over there. What about the lectern? Yep, yeah, over there, the eagle. Okay, this one might be tricky. Ready? Where's the narthex?
1: Mm.
0: No, we haven't gotten it yet. Where's the narthex, anybody know?
1: <laughs>
0: it's kind of a trick question. The narthex is the portion of the building outside of the sanctuary. So it's kind of a trick question. Okay, last one. Where are the paraments? Hmm, where are the paraments? They're in this room. Can you point to them? Hmm, Paramids, paraments. P A R A M E N T S. Paraments. Anybody know? Okay, the paraments are these colored pieces of fabric that are on the pulpit and on the lectern, and if you look at me, I match. Those are called paraments, And they're always a specific color because they correspond to the church calendar, which is something we'll talk about a different day. But this is called a stole. This is another form of a parament, And it matches the paraments up there. And you'll see DH's matches, Justin matches, and Debbie's matches. We all match. Now, why did we go over these words? Is it just fun for me to confuse you? (laughs) No. Well, it is a little bit fun, but (laughs) why did we really do this? What do you think? Yeah, so you can learn what things in this room are, because do you see stuff like this other places? No. No. Do you see pulpits at church? Or, excuse me, at school? No. No. Do you see pyramids at school? No. No. No, we use... Words in church that we only ever use in church. So it's important that we learn them because it's kind of like we're speaking a different language here. So that's part of the reason for us to learn these words. And then when you're talking to one of the adults, you can say, Well, have you noticed the paraments today? And you sound <laughs> very, very smart because even some of the grown-ups don't know what paraments are, I promise. so that's the first thing I wanted to teach you today, and you guys did really, really well. There's a lot more we gotta learn about church though. But here's the really good news. I'm here to help you learn. The choir's here to help you learn. All the other ministers in the church are here to help you learn. The teacher's here to help you learn. And all of those people behind you are here to help you learn. That's what church is all about. So don't forget that. We are all here to help you. Now, we're gonna say a prayer. We're going to do this prayer together every week. I'm going to teach it to you. So I'm going to do the first line. I want you to say it back to me, and I want you to be nice and loud. But because you are leading this, I actually want you to turn around, face the congregation. Adults, you're welcome to join in, but the kids are in charge of this. So I'll say the first line. you all say it nice and loud. You ready? I see the face of God in you. I see the face of God in you. The love of Christ comes shining through. And I am blessed to be with you. I
1: am blessed to be with you.
0: O holy child of God. God. Amen. Thank you guys. You can go back to your seats now. When September 11th occurred, I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, I was homesick that day of all days. I had a stomach of virus and woke up from a nap and turned on the TV and thought this was some horrible movie. And then I changed the channel and it was on every channel. It's been a long time since September 11th, but it is helpful, especially for those of us who live through it, to remember, to take space. To continue to deal with the grief of that day. And my words failed me this week. I tried all week to write something meaningful. So instead, I'm going to be borrowing a prayer from Rabbi David Wolpe. So let's pray together. Dear God, how do we pray for what was lost? We cannot pray for deliverance or a miracle. For the tragedy has already burned itself into our souls. Children have grown up without parents. Families are long since bereaved. We know that there is no prayer to change the past. So we pray to live with memory, with constant love, with the promise both to combat evil and to cherish goodness. Do not let pain cloud our hopes or crush our hearts. Help us grow through this tragedy. Keep faith with its victims and sustain our trust in you. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
3: A reading from Genesis. The Eternal One saw that wickedness was rampaging throughout the earth and that evil had become the first thought on every mind, the constant purpose of every person. At that point, God's heart broke and God regretted having ever made man in the first place. The Eternal One said, I know what I will do. I will wipe humanity, my special creation, from the face of the earth, humans, animals, creeping things, and the birds of the sky, for I regret that I ever made them. But there was one person whom the Lord could not let go of, Noah, because this man pleased the Eternal. They lived at a time when the world had become vile and corrupt. Violence was everywhere. God saw that the earth was in ruins, and he knew why. All people on earth, except Noah, had lived corrupt lives and ruined God's plans for them. He had to do something. Eternal One spoke to Noah. I've decided to wipe out all living creatures I've made because they are spreading violence throughout the earth. Watch, I will destroy them with the earth. I want you to build an ark. Build it of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with tar. Here's how you should do it. Build the ark 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Put a roof on the ark and leave a gap of 18 inches below the roofline for air to circulate. Put the door of the ark in its side and build it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Look. I am going to unleash a torrent and a flood to destroy all flesh under the heavens, which breathes the breath of life. Everything that is on earth will die. But I will make a pact with you, Noah, a covenant agreement to survive. You and your family, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives must go into the ark. And out of all the living creatures I have made, You must bring two of each kind into the ark with you to keep them alive. Bring one male and one female of each kind. Bring all kinds of birds, all sorts of animals, and all varieties of creatures that creep on the ground in pairs so that each species will survive. Also, you must bring food with you. Bring every kind of food that may be eaten and store it all inside the ark. That way, you and all of the creatures will have enough food to eat. So Noah listened to God, and he built the ark. He did everything God asked him to do. After the flood was over and the ark had come to rest on Ararat, Noah waited 40 more days before opening a window he had built into the ark. He sent one of the ravens out into the sky The raven flew back and forth until all the waters had dried up on the land. Noah then sent out a dove to see if the waters had subsided from the surface of the land. But the dove found no place to land safely, and it returned to the ark. The waters were still covering the surface of the whole earth. So Noah put out his hand and brought the dove back into the ark. Noah waited another seven days, and then he sent the dove out again. This time, the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew then that the waters had begun to retreat from the land. For good measure, Noah waited another seven days. Once more, he sent out the dove. This time, it did not return. After the water receded, God spoke a blessing over Noah and his sons. The Eternal also made a covenant with Noah, saying, Look, For I am now going to make a pact, a special covenant with you and all of your descendants. This covenant also extends to every living creature in the world, the birds, the domesticated animals, and every wild animal on the earth, as many as emerged with you from the ark. As part of this covenant, I promise you I will never again wipe out all living flesh by means of flooding waters. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. As a sign of this perpetual covenant I now make between me and you and all living creatures along with you, as well as all future generations, I will hang a rainbow among the clouds. It will serve as a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And from now on, whenever a cloud rises over the earth and a rainbow appears in the sky, I will remember my covenant, my promise I have made between me and and you and all living creatures. No waters will ever again turn into a flood powerful enough to destroy all living creatures. When that rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember this eternal covenant I have made with all living creatures. Look for the rainbow and remember my promise. With it, I sign the covenant I have made between me and all living creatures residing on the earth. A difficult story to be wrestled with.
1: Thank you,
3: God.
0: Let's pray together. O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And may we hear a word from you today. If I can convince you that the flood was not real, then I can convince you that heaven and hell are not real. Those are not my words. That is a plaque inside the Ark encounter in Williamstown, Kentucky. You've probably heard of this. The Ark was built in 2016 by a group called Answers in Genesis, an organization that also runs the Creation Museum, about a town over, about 40 miles away. This whole thing, both the museum and the Ark, are the brainchild of a gentleman named Ken Ham, who will not probably surprise you to learn is a biblical literalist and uh, believes that the Earth is only 6,000 years old. Now, if that name rings a bell and you're not sure why, uh, you, you are probably remembering that he had a pretty well-publicized debate with every millennial's favorite science teacher, Bill Nye, in 2014. After the debate, here's what, uh, here's what Bill Nye had to say about his reason for participating. This was an opportunity to expose the well-intending Ken Ham and the support he receives from his followers as being bad for Kentucky, bad for science, education, bad for the U.S., and thereby bad for humankind. Bill did not mince his words. The Ark is built to the exact dimensions given in the Bible, though uh, interestingly Ham, remember he's a literalist, will admit that the interior has been creatively imagined, or interpreted if you will, because we don't know for sure what the living quarters of the Ark look like and those sorts of details. If you would like to go, kids under 11 get in free, but for us adults, uh, the Ark encounter is $54.95. If you would like to add on the Creation Museum, you're going to pay a little bit more. That's $84.95. I mention this because if there was a way for me to go to the Ark Encounter without giving Ken Ham any money, I would be in line tomorrow morning. I am so fascinated by this whole Ark experience. And I disagree with Ken Ham on almost everything. I find this realistic arc, which, as an aside, suffered its own flood damage in 2019, (laughs) Uh, I just find it fascinating. I don't understand why anyone felt the need to build this. I also have the same response to Mormonism, particularly the FLDS. I find Scientology fascinating, Nexium, the Moonies, really any cult. I just don't understand it, and I want to learn more. Now notice that I said I disagree with Ken Hammond almost everything. The one thing we agree on is that the story of Noah's Ark is not in fact a children's story. Now I won't go nearly as far as he does. Uh, Ken goes quite far to prove this point. Inside the Ark, it's actually on the second deck according to the website, is a portion, uh, a, a display called uh, fairy Tale Ark. And from the website, here's what that is. Uh, It's a collection of drawings, children's books, toys, and images that portray a tiny uh, Noah's Ark that looks like a bathtub with the giraffe's head sticking out and modern animals on board. They go on to say that these are problematic images because everyone in them is smiling and happy. There is no explanation for the cause of the flood and there's no mention of sin or past and coming judgment. While these are meant to be cute and fun for kids and were surely drawn with good intentions, fairy tale arcs ignore the fact that the biblical account of the flood is about a righteous and holy God judging an exceedingly evil world yet showing mercy to animals and mankind through Noah's family. The Bible explains that the size of the ark was 300 by 50 by 30 cubits. Some children's books, and I promise I'm not making this up, this is what it says. Some children's books send mixed messages by citing the biblical dimensions of the ark while displaying an image of a fairy tale ark. Presenting contradictory information confuses readers rather than properly instructing them. Using artistic license and stylizing the ark is not necessarily sinful, but these cute ark uh, depictions drastically distort scripture and make the account look like a fairy tale. You're also encouraged as you go through the fairy tale arc display, to read through the seven Ds of deception, which include distorting the message, deceptively cute, and discrediting the truth. Now, I don't know what the other four are. It's not on the website. You do have to pay to learn the other four. <laughs> but very, very broadly, and I mean very broadly, what Ken Ham gets right is that this story is not a sweet children's message. It's not a sweet children's message when we think of it as more than about just a tale of happy animals walking two by two into a big boat. It's not a children's message in that the tale of Noah isn't one we should leave our kids to learn alone because it's just too complex. It's too potentially painful. It raises too many hard questions that we as adults need to struggle with. I do think we should teach kids this story, but with a big, big dose of thoughtfulness and honesty about how hard some of the things that we find in this story and in the Bible in general can be. And speaking of this story being hard, being difficult, I've mentioned to a couple of you, uh, I've been working on the sermon for a couple of weeks now, and it, it's taken me a while to figure out what to say what do you say about this hard text? What can I pull from it that you can then take with you into your week that, even if it isn't hopeful, could potentially be helpful? And to be honest, I still don't know. But what I can do is share with you some of the questions I have and then we can wrestle with them together. So. What do we do with this language about humanity being evil? This is the Genesis 6, verse 5 from the message. God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 from morning to night. God was sorry she had made the human race in the first place. Yikes, that is scary. What has humanity done that is so bad? We're only, uh, as one of the commentators I, pointed out this, uh, I listened to this week pointed out, we're only 10 generations in from Adam and Eve. How could things have possibly gone so wrong in that amount of time? Well, here's one response. This is all allegory. This didn't actually happen. Much like I explained with the creation narrative, this flood narrative is one people group's explanation for what we would now call a natural disaster. And that seems possible because many religions have some sort of flood narrative. If you have read the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know that that is the oldest surviving literature in the world. It's a story from ancient Mesopotamia. It was likely put down around 2100 BCE. And it tells the story of a massive life-ending flood. But it isn't just Mesopotamia. The Aztecs, the Greeks, Hindus, Buddhists, Norse, the Caddo Native American tribe, which is the indigenous people from where I'm from in East Texas, all of these groups have a flood narrative. So we could just say that this is an allegory. And the academic part of my brain resonates with that. I I can make sense of that, but it does nothing to ease The hurt in my heart with God being so distraught by humanity that mass murder seems to be the only solution. So here's here's what I found helpful this week. I listen to a podcast uh, every week while I'm preparing to preach. Um, It's a, a Christian pastor and a Jewish rabbi. They do this podcast together. The rabbi's name is Dr. Amy Robertson. She's a rabbi in Atlanta. And she offered something I'd never heard of. It's called the Jewish concept of the evil inclination. The evil inclination, which sounds awful when you first hear it, but stick with me. It's Yetzer Hera in the Hebrew, the opposite is Yetzer Tov, which means the good. And it's the idea that we're all born with a good and an evil inclination. Now I know that sounds a lot like original sin, which probably makes us all uncomfortable. But where this concept is considerably more generous than Christians tend to be, is that in Jewish teaching, they hold that having this inclination isn't bad or abnormal, something we all have. As Dr. Robertson explains, the yetzer hara isn't something we need to try to rid ourselves of. These are things like ego, appetite, sexual desire, all parts of us that can get out of control or drive you to evil. But, she says, if you can harness these things for good and for good purposes, this is where progress comes from. This is how we procreate. This is how we get things done, etc., etc. The problem occurs when our yetzirah isn't kept in check when we cross the line and allow ourselves to satisfy these inclinations for self-serving or greedy reasons. So rather than thinking of humanity as fundamentally bad and evil and therefore somehow deserving of this divine annihilation, looking at this flood story through the lens of Yetzar Hara, this evil inclination, suggests that perhaps the problem is that the people are out of control. They've crossed the line, perhaps a lot of lines. They've made poor choices. They need to be corrected and put right again. Okay, so that's one way to think of this. But that doesn't do anything for that ugly question in this story. is What do we do with this God who is so angry, who wants to end life, even all of the animals? Now, here are some things that have helped me navigate through this ugliness. It doesn't solve the ugliness, but it helps navigate it. First, if you go back and you look at Genesis 6:11, there is a mention of humanity's violence, and that's really important. Again, one of the commentators I listened to this week noted this indicates that what God is seeing is behavior that goes beyond vices or self-destructive behavior And it is behavior that is hurting other people. That does not make death okay, but it gives us some sort of concept of how bad things are. Second, and perhaps more importantly, we're told in Genesis 6 that God is heartbroken by what is happening with humanity. Now think about that for a second. God, the creator of the universe, the omnipotent, great I am, is upset to the point of being heartbroken, not sad not disappointed, heartbroken, particularly it seems when humans do violence to each other. What this points out is that this is a God who grieves, who wants to be in a relationship and is heartbroken that it isn't working. And though this assertion may seem odd, especially when we know what comes next, I think God's grief points away from seeing the eternal as a vengeful, hair-triggered deity. Instead, knowing that God is heartbroken directs us to understand a God devastated by her creation not living up to what she clearly foresaw and hoped for. Consider what a failure this is for God. Humanity should have worked. God made humanity. It should have been successful. People should be thriving, thriving, and this should be what God foresaw, and it's not happening. Again, it doesn't make murder okay, but maybe it makes us more compassionate to God. Third detail I found helpful this week. At the beginning of chapter seven, God gives Noah very specific instructions for what animals to bring into the ark. So for someone for being bent on destruction, The Eternal sure does work hard to make sure that there are enough animals and enough humanity for life to resume after this flood. The point being, God is angry and disappointed and heartbroken, yes. Heartbroken enough to be murderous. But God is also caring and detail-oriented enough to want Noah and his family and all of these animals to have a solid chance of thriving after the flood. Now I'm going to pause here, there's so much that happens in this story, I'm going to pause here, and I'm going to share a quote with you from another pastor who uses the narrative lectionary, that is what we have started today. We do a gathering once a month where, as pastors who use this lectionary, we get together, we talk about potential uh, preaching approaches, trouble we have with the text, it's a really good community gathering, and one of the other ministers shared this quote from a Cree poet, To love someone is firstly to confess, I am prepared to be devastated by you. To love someone is firstly to confess, I am prepared to be devastated by you. How does thinking about God as being devastated by us affect your response to this story? Now, last couple of questions this text raises for me. In chapter 8, verse 20 through 21, after the water recedes and Noah builds an altar to God, we hear God's thoughts. These are not spoken aloud. I'll never again curse the ground because of people. I know they had this bent toward evil from an early age, but I'll never again kill off everything living as I've just done. What are we to make of that? Because it feels like this is something to be celebrated. God's not going to flood the earth again. That's good news. But it comes with this kind of backhanded sort of comment about humanity that we are bent toward evil. And try as I might, I can't hold with a theology built on a foundation that people are at our core evil. That we are so evil we just can't escape it. I don't believe that we are inherently bad, I believe we're messy. I believe that we can be selfish and greedy and have a desire for power, and that is at the heart of much of the world's violence. I believe that humans can be incredibly cruel to each other and that the lessons we teach our children about kindness and compassion and just generally trying not to be a jerk, we adults don't take that to heart the way we should. But I don't think people are inescapably bad and in trying to live with this story, that Yetzer Hara that I mentioned continues to be helpful in that process. But here's the other piece of this puzzle that this text gives us, and we, we can miss it if we're not paying attention. God's mind changes in this story. Did you notice that? By Genesis 9... God has moved from being heartbroken over humanity to figuring out that people are inclined to be a certain way. We have a yetzer hara. We have this inclination. And rather than grieving this, God realizes that there is a need for new and better guidance and perhaps more compassion for people. It is incredibly telling that when God makes this covenant with Noah, the rainbow serves as a reminder to God, not Noah. The rainbow serves as a reminder to God of the covenant that's been created. This is not for humanity. It's for the eternal. So what that points to is that this God, the the creator, the eternal, whatever name you choose to use, changes over the course of this flood and promise cycle. God moves from being heartbroken to a new understanding of creation. Humans will never be exactly what God anticipated. That's the sneaky part of free will, right? We have a yetzer hurrah, it is deeply ingrained in us, but this reality doesn't make us unlovable, undeserving of life, or any less worthy of a relationship with our creator. And how powerful, How beautiful it is to see our Holy Parent growing in understanding of us. How powerful, how beautiful it is to see our Holy Parent growing in understanding of us. My friends, the good news this morning is twofold. First, remember... If we are to this point and you're still struggling with this story, and if you aren't, then come talk to me. I need your help. (laughs) If you're still struggling, keep in mind that we don't form our theology around a single character or a single passage of text. This flood story, the story of promise, is one piece of a story of faith. Second, and you might need to sit with this idea, it took God a minute to get to the point of not meeting violence with violence. It took God a minute to understand the ins and the outs of creation and that humanity wasn't quite what she anticipated. And it took God a minute to realize that a better response to violence is covenant. A better response is relationship. A better response is commitment. Now that isn't an easy response. Probably isn't a smart response all of the time. Certainly isn't the best use of God's time and creative resources, but maybe, just maybe, we can be like God in the latter half of this story. Maybe we can understand our expectations and realities are not always going to match up, and that's okay. But we can choose to meet violence and discord and disagreement With relationship, we can choose to move and make better, different, more committed responses. My friends, the good news is we can choose rainbow. has gathered his people around the earth to commune at this table. This is not my table. This is not Northminster's table. This is God's table. So we gather here where everyone is welcome and everyone is equal. We gather at this table across political lines and economic lines, in places of powerful, protected affluence and among the poorest of the poor. We share a meal, remembering and celebrating the one who is the tangible heart of God. And so come. Come with your doubts. Come with your hopes. Come with your inadequacies. And come with your strengths. Come. For this is a table where we all have a place. And now if you would, please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, Father, who who art art in heaven,
3: hallowed hallowed be Thy name.
0: On the night that he was handed over while at supper with his friends, Christ gave us a pledge of love that does not go away with death. On that evening, he took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks for it, and gave it to the disciples saying, take and eat all of you. This is my body, surrendered for you. And then when supper was over, he took a cup, he filled it with wine, and he gave thanks for it and shared it with the disciples, saying, take and drink, all of you. This is the seal of the new covenant, my poured out life. I will drink this cup with you again at the table of God's joy in the new day that is coming, and whenever you do these things, remember me. Thank you. this benediction. May God bless you with a distaste and superficial worship so that you will live deep within your soul. May God bless you with anger at prejudice so that you will work for justice. May God bless you with tears for those who sorrow so that you will offer comfort. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world. Go in peace.